The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome this Monday morning. Let's get into the headlines. You're watching Sportbox. Italy, uh, Italy quarantines 12 northern towns in an effort to contain the largest coronavirus outbreak outside of Asia as reported cases reach 152. And no surprise, coronavirus top of the agenda as ministers uh, meet here in Riyadh over the weekend for the G20. In an exclusive interview, U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin weighed in. In terms of the economic issues, it's tough to have strong predictions on the economic issues without being able to predict the health outcome. So I think we're going to need another three or four weeks to see how the virus reacts. The G20 calls for joint action to combat the spread as the IMF trims its Chinese and global growth forecasts. The French finance minister Bruno Le Maire tells CNBC France has seen a big fall in tourists due to the outbreak. We have less tourists, of course, in France, about 30 percent, 40 percent less than expected. Uh, that's, of course, an important impact for the French economy. But once again, uh, the key uh, factor and the key point for us is the supply chain for the French industry. Well, according to my screen, as I speak, Unicredit, uh, the Italian bank says the CEO, Mr. Mustier, is staying put and will focus on successful execution of their new 2023 strategy. That rules him out of the race to lead HSBC, whilst the FT says Barclays is starting the search for a successor to Jez Staley. German Chancellor Angela Merkel's CDU suffers its worst ever loss in the Hamburg elections as the SPD makes a rare gains alongside the Green Party. that fresh that the fact it got into our headlines Unicredit which potentially could have lost its CEO uh, a man who is very well thought of in Italy uh, Frenchman Monsieur Mustier uh, Jean-Pierre Mustier uh, so well thought of in Italy that uh, HSBC went sniffing potentially uh, as him being their new CEO but he's now staying put uh, and as I mentioned in the headlines he says or the company says uh, will stay put and focus on the successful execution of the new 2023 plan. Of course, that doesn't help at all. Um, the problems over at HSBC, which has talked about a large amount of job losses, but they need a steward to shepherd them through that very, very difficult period. And at the moment, the interim CEO, Noel Quinn, is the only name that we've seen on the ball board. As you can see from the share price performance, the difference between a strong stewardship and a strong uh, proposition uh, means around about a 30% difference in the share price performance over the last 12 months with Unicredit up 18% and HSBC down just under 12% over that period. Talking of Italy, there is a, a crisis developing in northern Italy we should get to. Yeah, absolutely, Steve. You know, the first thought that comes
comes to mind with those two bank stories. Better the devil you know than the one maybe you don't. But let's move on and let's talk about coronavirus. Italy has imposed a series of quarantine measures on 12 towns in the Veneto and Lombardy regions after reporting a spike in coronavirus infections. The country has confirmed 152 cases now with three deaths. The regions make up around 30% of Italy's economic output, while the affected towns are just south of the financial hub of Milan. Officials have cut short the Venice Carnival and suspended football games as they try to contain the spread of the virus. Universities and schools have been closed and Milan's opera house La Scala has cancelled performances. Giorgio Armani's fashion show went ahead as part of Milan Fashion Week, but no buyers or media were present. Well, let's get out to Claudia Pensotti from Class CNBC. She joins us now on the line from Milan. And Claudia, it might be helpful, I think, uh, for those of us outside of Italy and outside of this region specifically, if you could just give us a sense of what the mood is like there. How fearful are people? How are they responding to the measures that the government has taken? Well, Jeff, clearly there is uh, a lot of concern uh, about uh, what could happen mostly. So that's what people are really acting on right now. You are seeing a situation in which people are trying to understand if we were to see a quarantine sort of lockdown situation in Milan, uh, trying to make plans of how to manage their uh, professional situation, their, their personal situation, families, uh, you know, with schools being closed. So it's clearly causing a lot of unrest, and this happened over the weekend. You know, that's when things really escalated were around Saturday evening. So many people yesterday spent the day trying to uh, make decisions as to how to plan for the next day. So I think the concern is more about that, less on the idea that uh, there is a real threat with uh, the actual virus. Uh, the numbers, you know, of course, are growing, but they are, as you said, still very limited. Two deaths uh, in Lombardy, or three, one in Veneto region. Uh, but the idea that we have learned from what happened in China, that if you act too quickly, uh, maybe, you know, you can certainly uh, find a way to, to limit, uh, that is, is, is comforting on the other hand. So officials are all working together independently of political uh, positions, so city, region, uh, the nation. Uh, I think the, the feeling is that things are being done. Of course, you know, people want to make sure that if they are not well, that they can reach the phone numbers that you have been requested to, to call. Uh, people are being careful about abiding by what right now are just suggestions. There is no lockdown. Uh, there is a suggestion to uh, not go into public places, to not go to places where people can uh, gather. So movies, uh, bars uh, will be closed from 6 p.m. in the evening to 6 p.m. in the morning. And the hope is that people will really abide by all of these rules and that the situation can remain calm. Of course, you know, we are waiting to see what happens in terms of markets. Uh, the Italian uh, market is expected to open lower by 3.5% right now. But as you said, 30% of GDP comes from this area here. So things like the fair for the eyeglass uh, uh, market that is what's scheduled has been canceled. There is concern about what else could be canceled going forward. So the big question mark is what kind of longer-term effect will this have? What will it bring in terms of an economic effect and a social effect, you know, with the fear that is really mounting and, uh, you know, will, will we be able to keep this aspect of sort of the, 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 the getting it out of hand under control?
Claudia, thank you very much. Claudia Pensotti with us from Class CNBC, joining us on the phone from Milan. And that's been the issue, the very rapid spread of this virus now in Europe, in Italy. And then you've seen uh, closures and lack of public gatherings. What's next when it comes to the workforce and economy that uh, the government, the Italian government, saw growing 0.1% in 2019? Not much room for error and economic growth if you do have shutdowns or impacts around key production plants. No, absolutely right. And given the um, sclerotic growth we've seen across Europe, this this is just uh, another nail in the story, isn't it? Um, let's uh, just pick up on, on some of the um, other aspects to this. The uh, EU e Economy Commissioner Paolo Gentiloni says Italy can deal with the virus threat. Speaking to CNBC at a meeting of G20 finance ministers in Riyadh, Gentiloni said authorities in the country have the situation under control. There is absolutely no reason for panic. There is reason for solidarities for the two victims that we had for coronavirus in, in these weeks, two victims. Uh, and then there is reason to have confidence in institutions and Italian authorities. They know the situation, they are taking the good measures. So the European Union is perfectly confident on what the Italians are doing. Uh, but I repeat, there is no reason for panic and the um, situation is uh, very um, matter of concern for the spread. But uh, I repeat, we had only two victims and this is the contradiction of this uh, virus having a certain amount of spread but demonstrating to be uh, rather less lethal than previous one. But anyway, it's to the health authorities to establish what has been done. And the European Union is uh, continuously in contact with Italian authorities and full confident of their decisions. OK, there's so much going on globally, including what's going on over my right hand shoulder. And this is absolutely key for some people as well. That is, we believe, Air Force One hitting the tarmac in New Delhi, just um, taxiing around there, of course. Uh, and when you've got President Trump uh, and Mr Modi potentially looking at a deal which will cover uh, what are you, around about what, 1.3, 1.4 billion people, uh, you know, the kind of gravity of the situation between these two uh, superpowers as well. So India, which is still growing circa 5%, the US growing north of 2% as well. These are absolutely pivotal economies, especially when you consider the problems we're seeing over in China as well. So Air Force One, we believe, as you can see, beautiful plane, let's be honest about it, um, taxiing to a, a standstill over in New Delhi. And of course, we're bringing you lots of coverage of that trip to India from the US president. Let me move on. Uh, the number of Cases growing outside of China is rising in coronavirus, that is. Uh, South Korea has now confirmed over 700 cases, uh, for, with most coming from the city of Daegu. Authorities in Seoul have reported seven fatalities related to the virus. Iran has also confirmed over 40 cases with eight deaths linked to the outbreak. And of course, markets are nervous about this. But look, this is the truth. Markets are not very good at evaluating and extrapolating on geopolitical events, on terrorism events. And I think I'll put into that bracket as well, uh, global virus stroke concerns over pandemics. Markets don't know how to price this stuff as well. They find it very, very difficult, as you know as well. Markets feel a lot more comfortable pricing debates uh, between central banks uh, and indeed where the market valuations and economic valuations should be on the back of that. Whether they get it right or not remains to be seen, but that's where they feel much more comfortable. But in the meantime, we are seeing 
some um, coronavirus-inspired declines, especially uh, on markets such as the Seoul market, currently down 3.5%. And yet, despite that, the U.S. market declines last week, and we'll just move through some of the boards here, were very interesting. We saw, in fact, we've got energy up here, so I can just tell you today we've got uh, WTI down 2.2%. But last week was up 2.6%. And we know that energy is under a vast amount of pressure. In fact, I've been looking at the year-to-date moves on US sub-indices and the likes of utilities and real estate are the best performers, up around about 8%. And as you would expect, given what we've seen about with WTI year-to-date, down around about 10% there. Uh, gold is still hitting uh, seven-year highs, trading at levels we haven't seen since February 2013. I will show you the treasuries because you've seen the 30-year going down uh, to multi-year lows, trading around about a 1.89% yield at its low, the 10-year getting down to 1.47. But I just want to make one more point, and we can have a look at the opening calls as we do this as well. Uh, and this is the market doesn't know how to value coronavirus. I think we can all pretty much agree on that. I think they are thereabouts pretty much. But the market thinks it knows how to value markets versus interest rates and feds and economy. Again, we can agree that the market has a degree of inaccuracy, but it thinks it knows what it's doing on that front as well. But there are other factors as well. And I just want to bring in one more factor today. And that is the fact that despite everything that's going on, there are still enormous amounts of buybacks going on. And the latest data from Howard Silverblatt of S&P Global is pointing out one fact, that there was a 20% decline year on year in the fourth quarter in buybacks, okay? 20% decline. And yet, with most of the names still to be, uh, are in the bag now, 64% have been counted. So still quite a few to come. We've already got to $170 billion. That is $170 billion of stock which has been bought but will never be sold because, of course, you buy them uh, and then you, via treasury or whatever, you get rid of these shares as well. So they are bought for cancellation. So whatever's going on in the world, whether it's coronavirus, whether it's market concerns, whether it's Fed concerns, whether it's interest rates, you name it as well, the pool of stocks out there is slimming down. And that may account for a lot of the reason why markets are finding it very difficult to go down. Okay, here we are very quickly. Zetrax called down 255 points. FTSE MIB over in Italy. I should make attention to this one, of course, given what we're seeing in Northern Italy. 905 points easier as well. US futures. I can give you a very early look at this one as well, if you like, as well. We are called significantly lower yet again. Uh, S&P implied open 46 points easier. Jeffrey. Yeah, Steve, thanks very much. Um, picking up on what you were saying, um, we do see the, uh, the plane arriving. Uh, and there you go. It's on the ground. This is uh, President Trump in India. Uh, he is um, at a place called uh, Medavad. Uh, that's where he's arrived. This, of course, a, a reciprocal trip to the one that was uh, called Howdy Modi uh, when he uh, went uh, when President uh, Trump hosted Mr. Modi in the United States. And uh, this trip, I believe, is called Namaste, Mr. Trump. So there you go. I'm at a bad. Uh, we'll keep an eye on this uh, and we'll come back to it if there's some more action around the plane. But it's a and big tariffs, set piece right? event. It's going to be around tariffs too, right? Tariffs, uh, military sales, mm. a broader trade agreement between the two countries. There's quite a lot on the table as far as this trip is concerned. And of course, the big issue uh, for Trump is can he draw India a little closer as a strategic bulwark against China? And of course, we've all read and seen copy like Tim Marshall's book. Tim Marshall's done a couple of very big books on this, talking about... India and China are massive superpowers, but one of the main reasons why they, they haven't come to uh, a hotter conflict over the years is because there's a ruddy great load of hills between them called the Himalayas as well. But there is no doubt about it, there is a regional rivalry between these two billion plus people populations as well. So uh, as 
uh, India uh, and China and China via its One Belt and Road goes on its strategy to find more sources for its economy around the world. And India looks to increase uh, its burgeoning economy as well. Are these two global economic superpowers going to get into other forms of rivalries? And I think that's what you were alluding to there uh, with the US. By numbers, India closer. ninth largest trading partner in goods with the United States. And uh, there's obviously a deficit. The US has a 25.2 billion deficit with India. So you can see how Trump wants to correct that. And tariffs are coming very much to the forefront. Think what Trump calls himself a tariff man, but he's called India the king of tariffs. So oh, any sites around tariffs. Well, because, sorry, I just, just so many different aspects to this as well. But the whole visa debate at the start of the Trump presidency was very much targeting the Indian services companies. And we've spoken, of course, to the likes of Infosys and others as well, who have grave concerns about that relationship on the services front as well. So I wonder if that's going to come up in conversations. And let's sure push on to coronavirus because trade very much where we started the year, but coronavirus taking over from some of those trade tensions. G20 financial leaders have warned that the coronavirus outbreak could pose a serious risk to global growth. Ministers and central bankers agreed after a weekend meeting in Riyadh to take action if the spread of the virus intensifies. I think the number is 0.4% off for Chinese GDP growth this year is what the IMF sees. Let's get out to Hadley and Dan for more from Riyadh. They've been speaking to world leaders over the weekend. Hadley, first up to you. Clearly the market's trying to value coronavirus one way, but for world leaders dealing with the crisis, much more heightened concerns, particularly after the spread of the virus to the likes of Italy over the weekend. No doubt about it, Karen. I think what was one of the main sticking points, I think, at the G20 conference of Dan this weekend was the fact that while they wanted to recognize the significance and the worry over coronavirus, they were still very, very hesitant uh, to say too much. They just continued to kick that town, I think, down the road a couple of weeks here, trying to get a bigger picture and a better picture about what exactly is happening with regards to this virus and how quickly it is spreading. One of the things, of course, that we've been talking about is the pace at which this story has been gaining momentum since, you know, just a week ago when I was speaking to the managing director of the IMF. She said it was too sur- too early, too soon to make a call here. And then, of course, we see what's happened over the last 24 hours or so with the announcement knocking 10 basis points off of global growth, almost half a percent off of Chinese growth through the year. I had the chance to catch up in an exclusive interview with the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, and I asked him if we need to move faster. Listen in. This has been a topic of discussion here, as it should be, because this is a a human issue that's impacting lots of places, including China and other areas around the world. I would say in terms of the economic issues, it's tough to have strong predictions on the economic issues without being able to predict the health outcome. So I think we're going to need another three or four weeks to see how the virus reacts until we really have good statistical data. I think the although the the rate the virus spreads at is is quite significant, the mortality rate is 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 quite small. So, uh, it's it's something we're monitoring carefully. I think one of the discussions we're having here is that countries should be prepared, but I think we're at a point where it's too early to either say this is very concerning or it's not concerning. But no doubt you have a backup plan in your mind in terms of a fiscal potential response there, um, even just for a few weeks. No question about it. And I think that was the message that we have here to the other countries. And I think there's a, there's an agreement on that. When you think about what happens next with regards to China, obviously, the last time we met, we were sitting in Doha and you had just announced phase one completion uh, with the trade deal. That would have put you and your team in China in early December. Do you believe that the Chinese government knew about this danger? I I don't. I think that uh, the Chinese government reacted much quicker than they have in previous 
situations. Uh, we couldn't be more pleased that we completed phase one. We've also passed now the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement in our Congress. Both of these are quite significant to us economically. The focus on the China deal was always implementing phase one. The good news is we're getting a lot of work done on that in the implementation phase. And there's no question that uh, China's major focus is now controlling the virus. And the, the approach of phase two will definitely slow down a little bit. But we now do understand that Chinese officials were aware of what was happening in Wuhan in early December. You don't believe that they put you and your team in danger? No, no, I don't. America's Treasury Secretary there weighing in on the continuing uh, conversations that we heard just over the weekend about coronavirus. He's saying essentially to me that we do have a plan to tackle this. We are watching this very closely. Just one wonders if the pace of the story is not going to outpace their thinking. Absolutely. I also had the opportunity to speak with France's finance minister, Bruno Le Maire. He said that this is having a significant impact in the country, particularly He's seeing issues within French supply chains being significantly disrupted, but perhaps more importantly as well, on French tourism, a significant decline in the first quarter numbers that he's seeing so far, down by between 30 and 40 percent. And that is huge for France, of course, 2.7 million visitors visiting that country from China uh, each year. And at the same time, China being the largest source of foreign tourists into that country in any given year. So that is going to be certainly something to watch. At the moment, his early estimate is that it could knock 0.1 point off growth in the first quarter. At the same time, we also had the opportunity to speak with the European Commissioner uh, late yesterday. He was certainly working to ease market concerns ahead of the European Open, particularly when you look at the situation in Italy, as you've been discussing. He is, of course, the former Prime Minister there. Uh, we asked him about the situation in Lombardy and Veneto. These are the industrial heartlands of Italy in the country's north, which represent about 30% of the country's GDP effectively being shut down. Really interesting situation there because what we've seen is uh, three cases on Friday and then a significant ramp up in Italy to 150 plus cases now across the weekend. So he's obviously quite concerned about that outbreak, that cluster that we're seeing in Italy, but saying that now is not the time to panic and really working to uh, assure investors and the international community uh, that European leaders have this situation under control. No doubt about it. And obviously the implication as well for oil prices. Of course, we caught up with the finance minister of Saudi Arabia as well over the weekend. I asked him specifically about how worried he is. Seemingly um, not too much. Of course, that was 24 hours ago. And now we've seen a significant drop in the price of oil. And it's going to be interesting to see how all of this plays out over the next couple of days, because as you very well know, we're all going to be headed to Vienna for the OPEC, OPEC Plus meeting in just a few days from now. Guys, back to you. All right, Adley, Dan, thank you very much indeed for that. And let's um, just refocus for a moment here on the pictures in uh, Gujarat State. This is uh, President Trump's aircraft, Air Force One. It's on the ground at this airport in Ahmedabad. Uh, we are waiting for the president to leave the plane. So um, many interesting factors here. You can't fail to have it when you've got India, one of the greatest power democ democracies on the planet, and the US, one of the greatest democracies on the planet. But, but why isn't India in the firing line from the US president for their trade surplus. Uh, and if they have been, I've seemed to have missed it because I've heard about the Europeans and I've heard about the Chinese and I've heard about the Japanese. But India they is a major export line. of steel, steel products and aluminium products, amongst other things. Combined exports to the US last year of $22.7 billion. Now, just those three products alone, steel, steel products, and let's call it aluminum, 
Weren't these the three products in the American heartland, dare I say it, Rust Belt in some ways, that America was supposed to bounce back on the global stage with with their own production and stop surpluses going into the United States? So there had been measures. Uh, June 2019, the US ended its uh, preferential trade status for India. So under that generalized system of preferences, uh, the scheme that allows uh, goods to move and enter the United States duty-free. So there was an issue mid last year that's caused a diplomatic rift between the two countries and effectively India then imposed retaliatory tariffs on about 28 US products. So there has been a simmering trade fight. I think it got buried in the noise of the US-China fight, which has been much more dominant. Can I make one completely irrelevant point? I normally make many more on that in the show, so just bear with me. US Indian bilateral trade stood in 2019, as of April to December 2019, at $68 billion, give or take the change, right? $68 billion. And yet today we're talking about maybe they can hope to sign a finalise, a free trade agreement, yeah? Uh, So it could take bilateral to another level. They've got $68 billion already, but they haven't got a free trade agreement. Does that mean that the UK and EU should desperately search for their bilateral trade deal when actually you can do perfectly well, according to this, without one in place. Well, trade will always take place. Well, this um, is the point. And that's, you know, the, <clears throat> the whole Ricardian idea of the comparative advantage is still going to be relevant. Some countries can do some things better than other countries, and at different stages of their economic development, they're better placed to provide, for example, low-cost manufacturing, or they may have a history of that. Um, I guess going forward, the idea is that we should be moving to a world in which all trade barriers... Uh, all trade tariffs. Do you see what I did there? Barriers and tariffs. Barriffs. But all trade barriers should should fall to the wayside. Then we can have trade on relatively equal terms. But at the moment, I guess, for countries like India and China historically, the United States has taken the view that there should be preferential treatment for them as they try to reach a stage of development where they emerge as a democracy. Yeah, but you're talking much about like a world the United where States. there is no dumping of products. And let's face it, yeah. if, we, if we're talking about a bone of contention between the US and India, let's go to agriculture as well. Because agriculture, whether it's US farmers or European cap policy, and we've seen how contentious cap has been in the last week as well, yeah. we do know that there are areas where it's not a level playing field, where bigger supernatural bodies such as the EU and big countries such as the, uh, the US can dump their agricultural products onto uh, smaller scale manufacturers and create huge agricultural and societal problems. I think it's worth remembering you've got two very different countries here. Uh, India still with large scale poverty in parts of the country, very hard economy to try and manage versus a developed market like the United States. And uh, you've got two men coming together today. I think the irony is that uh, similar types of policies, they want to put their own country first. You've got make an India policy, you've got make America great again. And I think there's a grudging respect between the two men. You can see that in the warmth of the relationship around the use of tariffs and the first glimpse there of President Trump as he makes it off Air Force One with uh, the First Lady, Melania. Yes, and and Jared Jared Kushner will be there as well as his daughter. I believe they're on the plane as well. And a big feature of this, of course, uh, aside from the talks, they will have a little bit of me time uh, when it comes to India and they are expected to travel on to the Taj Mahal at some point for this Namaste Trump visit. Um, But I think all the points you're making are are good points. And I guess um, historically India has been difficult for other countries to enter. One has been the trade barriers. The other has just been the level of overall bureaucracy and the resistance to market access for other countries. And that, I think, has been historical. And it will be very difficult, I think, for Trump to break 
some of that down. Well, let me go from my relevant point to my irritating point as well. Is a supplemental nutritional assistance program, of course. You know, you were talking about one very developed nation and one very poor nation, which has a large amount of poverty historically compared. The supplemental nutrition assistance program actually feeds more than 36 million people, Karen. That's amazing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Not in India, in America. Right. Amazing, isn't it? We're talking food stamps. We're talking food stamps. So I just incredible. kind of, you know, don't get me wrong, very huge amount of wealth at the top of both nations. India's got a space program as well. They've got a very developed military as well. They've got nuclear <laughs> weapons as well. But, you know, yeah, there is a lot of poverty. And I'm not comparing Indian poverty with US poverty. I'm just saying, you know, on both sides of the ledger, over 10% of Americans a on food stamps. A very old argument that you've heard through the lens of China before about what sort of growth rate you need the Chinese economy to be growing by to try and feed the population. Similar story with India. We talk about much higher growth rates required than, say, the United States. And I think we've become used to a roughly a six-handle for Indian growth versus, say, a 2 to 3% handle for the United States. So channeling that growth and the impact that tariffs has on the economy is certainly very key. What has been a stumbling block? Price controls on medical equipment. There's been issues over data storage, access, market access that, that Jeff mentioned. I think we've seen it across in the retail sector in particular. There have been issues around that. Um, and, and coming back to the points uh, that you were making about some of the major projects, those have not been without controversy in India. People are asking those questions. Why are we investing so much money in a space program when there is such poverty in some parts of the country? And successive governments, as we know, have, have had um, uh, these sores of the Kashmir problem and border incursions with the Chinese. So there are issues around India's border and various nationalist governments over the years have chosen to focus on the threats from the externalities from China, from Pakistan and so forth, and rather than focusing on feeding the population. Yeah, let's, let's go back to the British as well. You know, it wasn't a, an, an easy legacy. I mean, the handover in the late 40s. Again, so, you know, India, whether it's the devastating partition in the late 40s, whether it's the relationship with China as well, just look at a map and you see why they go for the high military, why they want nuclear security, why they want a space race. I mean, we, you know, maps tell us a lot of things. So if we look at the map today and exactly where they are, this is the political heartland for Modi. So the reading between the lines as to what this means politically for Modi, it is a show of faith from the US president to be in his political heartland, isn't it? A highly political statement from the US president about the sort of support that he's offering Modi at this point to, to be in this particular place in India. I mean, one of the other controversies around this particular trip is the amount of money that's been spent to hide away the um, accommodation or the, 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 the poor accommodation that people are living in. The government has spent a fortune building a fence effectively to shield Trump and his entourage's eyes from looking at some of the slum dwelling that is along the route that he is going to take. And again, he likes you know, a good wall though, doesn't he? Well, he, he likes a good wall, so maybe that will appeal. But, uh, you know, the Indian authorities constructed this in the name of um, security mm. to stop people crossing the highway where they were meant to uh, going to travel down. But obviously, um, pe people have not been that easily fooled and have realized that this is ultimately about concealing a lot of India that the government doesn't want the president to see on this namaste trump visit. yes and look over here all the fanfare you're seeing on the ground a hello trump reception at the cricket stadium will be uh, one of the the main events for the day thank
Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.